Hi there, it's Keith, creator of the Book of Constellations. All 16 episodes of Chapter 1 are now available for you to listen to, but the story isn't over yet. We have some fun new things coming for the show, and the best way to find out about them is to sign up for our newsletter. It'll have information about special events, announcements, merchandise, and other shows we've been working on. Plus, you'll get exclusive commentary and behind-the-scenes information not found elsewhere. To sign up, visit bookofconstellations.com. And let's stay connected. The Book of Constellations Written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms Chapter 1, Verse 2 One minute, I'm about to take my own life, and the next, I'm having coffee with the man who stopped me. Rael, the scrawny stranger with the sunglasses and bare feet, who seemed to fall from the sky to ask me to go west with him to fight the darkness. <coughs> Whatever that is. <coughs> Rail has been vague on that point up until now. Add to that the fact that he was wearing hospital bracelets, scrubs, and a beat-up wool poncho, and maybe I'm dealing with an escaped mental patient. But as we sat there in Lulu's diner at 3 a.m., and he spoke to me with his strange, calm certainty about the work I had yet to do despite the creeping cancer growing in me, I believed him. Okay, I didn't really believe in everything about him. I still thought he was out of his gourd. But I also thought there was something more there. Something I wanted to see more of. Something I wanted to see through. So, when that government car pulled up into the diner's parking lot and idled there with menace, and Rail tells me that it's the servants of the darkness coming to take him, well, again, I believed him. At least, I believed that whoever they were, they were a threat. Let's face it, people with badges show up at your door, and most of us got plenty to worry about, innocent or not. Fortunately for us, the car has an odd angle on the diner, and my RV is parked right out in front of the big window we're sitting next to. They may not be able to see him yet. Who are they? I ask him. He just shakes his head faintly, and then glances around the diner in thought. The darkness has taken away their compassion and their restraint, he says. So what do we do? I should go. Okay, yeah, I say. Maybe there's a back door to this place. Come on. The diner's pretty small. There's eight booths, four on either side of the front door, and a counter with a few stools that looks in on the kitchen. You know, a short order type setup, big metal slab to cook everything on, soda fountain, coffee maker, and waffle irons. At the end of the counter is a swinging door that leads into the back. I'm guessing that's the storage room, dish pit, little office, whatever. Public restrooms are on the other end of the counter. Uh, The place has seen better days, honestly. Uh, The booths have strips of duct tape on them holding the stuffing in, and the shiny vinyl surfaces were once powder blue, but 
now were faded by years of sunlight and use. Same with the big poster prints on the wall. Lots of restaurants got better food, better decor, but places like Lulu's are all about stability, familiarity, decency. It's always here. They've always got hot coffee and greasy food. And in a chaotic world, that's a comfort. I hurry as best as my aching legs can carry me along the counter, heading for the door that leads into the back. Rail follows in my shadow. The cook and the waitress have turned away from the TV with its angry news clowns to peer out of the nearby window at the sedan. The waitress, her name tag says Doreen, looks worried. The cook, a big guy with faded navy tattoos on his arms, stops us. Where you going? Is there a door through there? I ask, pointing in the back room. He shakes his head emphatically. "Uh Uh-uh, you're not going back there. Whatever you two have done, you're not dragging us into it. I get it. I understand why he'd say that, but I have to try. Please, look, we'll just slip out and... Before I can finish my thought, I hear the sedan's doors slam closed. We're still mostly hidden by the walls of the diner, so I lean over to try to get a better look. Two people have gotten out of the car, which is still parked right there in the middle of the lot, lights on. One is a soldier, wearing combat fatigues. It's a camouflage pattern I haven't seen before, made of hexagons and shades of gray. He's also got on a black gator mask pulled up over his nose and mouth, and a black beret on his head. Oh, and a sidearm. The other person is a woman. She's also in what looks like military uniform, but it's more like a dress uniform than battle fatigues. Pencil skirt, vest, three-quarter sleeves. It's also dark gray, and she's got a white mask over her lower face as well, though her black hair is done up in a severe bun, also carrying a sidearm. She takes a moment to survey the whole parking lot, look at in particular at my RV, and then says something to the soldier pointing at the side of the diner. He starts walking, going around back. If I can't get rail out of the back door now, it'll be too late. Please, I say again to the cook. We're not here to cause problems, but we can just sneak out and you'll never see us again. But he shakes his head, folds his burly arms. He's middle-aged, balding with a belly, has that florid pink skin of someone out of shape. But there's still sturdy muscle mass in his frame, and I'm an old guy who can barely walk. There's no way I could take him. He says, whatever trouble you're in, you're going to have to deal with it yourselves. Doreen, the waitress, steps closer to the cook and says softly, I don't like this, Gary. Let him go, maybe. There's fear in her eyes as she watches the duo in the parking lot. The woman is starting to walk towards my RV. Any second now, that soldier might get a good angle on rail through the window. Gary, the cook, says to Doreen, No way! You want to be arrested for aiding and abetting? Rael says, Simon, there is no time. He's right, of course. Uh, all right, come on, quick, hi- hide in the bathroom. We hurry back along the counter, and I give him a little push toward the alcove with the pair of bathroom doors, and he stops, just looking at each one at a time. Which? He asks. What? I say, just pick one. He stares a moment more. First at one door, then the other, like he doesn't understand. But then he goes into the men's. Leaning on the counter as I feel a twinge of pain in my hips, I turn back to the window near the booth we had been sitting in, just in time to see the woman step up to my camper, lit starkly by the lights outside the diner. 
Her face is hidden by the mask stretched over her mouth and nose. Her steps are purposeful and precise, and when she comes to a halt, she goes stock still for a moment, her posture just as slender and artfully arched as a mannequin. That moment of stillness stretches for what seems forever, until she moves again, heading straight for the door in the side of the RV, grabbing the handle and trying it. I keep it locked, of course. One strange thing, she's wearing a glove on her right hand. Not like a military glove, but like a long cloth glove that disappears under the sleeve of her blouse at her forearm. It's bright magenta. Hey, I call, though either she doesn't hear me or she ignores me as she pulls on the handle a few more times, each with more force than the last. Pushing past the pain, I limp outside and toward my camper. I don't like her going through my stuff, but really, I just hope I can buy Rael a distraction. The buzz of the fluorescent lights drowns out the crickets outside. The woman has moved from the side door of the camper to the back, looking it over with intense, bird-like concentration. Hey, I call again, doing my best to hustle a little closer. She stops and slowly pivots to face me. That magenta-gloved right hand gliding to rest near her sidearm, though she doesn't reach for it. What do you do? I start to say. But what gives me pause is my first real good look at her. I already mentioned the uniform. It fits her tightly, like a second skin. That pencil skirt seems too snug to even let her walk, but she didn't seem to have troubles. The only insignia I see is a patch on her vest over the heart of a Greek letter Theta. She has a tight and compact frame, like a dancer's, I guess, but with a gentle grace replaced with hard-edged purpose. Her skin is pale, a ghost of a woman. She wears a mask, not a gaiter like that soldier had, but a surgeon's mask of white cloth, the elastic stretched around her ears, the fabric so tight against her face I could see the shape of her lips. But it was her eyes that really caught me off guard. One was a gray-blue color, the left, but the right one, the same side as she wore that glove on, was magenta, too. Same shade, even. She stares at me with those mismatched eyes, waiting for me to finish my sentence, but I'm so caught off guard, I end up stammering out something like, this is my camper, what are you doing? I can see her lips pull into a smile under her mask as she stares me down. With her left hand, the ungloved one, she points to the back of the RV. I'm using sticker, she says. Moon or bust? You don't strike me as an astronaut. I should explain. It's an old RV, and the people I bought it from were... Let's call them free spirits. They were kids in the early 60s, and they never really grew out of the whole hippie thing. They called their camper their spaceship, and so they thought it was fun to put this old slogan on it back from the dawn of the space race. It's got a cartoon face of the moon, and in these retro letters it says, Moon or Bust. For me, camper's just a place to live, so I never really bothered about the sticker. I say to her, Astronaut or no, it's mine. I saw you messing with the door. You better clear out of here before I call the cops. Her eyes light up as if she finds that amusing, but she doesn't laugh. Her heels click on the concrete as she walks slowly around the RV, past me, to the front, to gaze into the cab. Late to be out, isn't it? 
dying for bacon and eggs? What's it matter, I say. It's a free country. And now she does laugh, this high cascading giggle. (laughs) Oh dear. I say, well if you must know, I was just having a late night cup of coffee. She's standing at the front of the camper now, facing the grill, looking into the cab. Ah yes, coffee. Her gloved hand rises as if doing ballet. And she turns gracefully 180 degrees to face the window of the diner where there's the booth Rael and I have been sitting at. And the two cups of coffee still resting there, half drunk. One, she counts, pointing at each mug in turn. Two. Then she stares at me, that magenta eye glimmering in the blue fluorescent light. She's caught me out, and I'm not ready for this. I say, uh, I-, I met a buddy here, but he left just a few minutes ago. But I don't think I'm very convincing, because halfway through, she walks away, straight for the diner's entrance. I limp after her, trying to distract her. Hey, look, you, you can't just try to break into someone's property like that. But she completely ignores me, as she walks inside and over to the table where we had been sitting. I think her appearance has the same startling effect on Doreen and Gary because they blanch a little and go still, just waiting to see what's going to happen. She stares at the two coffee cups, and with careful movements, unhooks the elastic from around her ears and peels the mask down from her face. Now that her nose and mouth are exposed, she inhales deeply from the air around the booth. Her lips are unpainted, a dull gray pink, and they slowly spread into a smile. She turns back to me and the others, carefully folding up her mask to slide it into a pocket. I notice then that she has a number of tiny web-like white scars running up her cheek toward her magenta eye. They make the side of her face look like cracked porcelain. Where is he? She asks advancing slowly towards us with precise clicks of her heels on the tile floor. Gary frowns and clears his throat. We don't want any trouble. She answers him with a severe smile. Well, that's a silly thing to say. Who in their right mind ever wants trouble? Right then, the swinging door to the back room bumps open and the soldier comes through, broad, strong, dangerous eyes, capable of anything. I noticed the theta patch on his chest, too. Gary spins at the noise. What do you think you're doing? He says. He takes a couple of steps toward the man, raising a hand, which is his mistake. The soldier is suddenly moving, grabbing Gary's wrist, twisting his arm, smashing his face down against the counter. Doreen screams. I go to help, but the woman with the magenta eye rests her hand on her pistol and glances back at me warningly. So I stop. What are we doing? Anything we want. The soldier now has Gary in a submission hold, pinned against the counter. Gary's nose is bleeding, and he's breathing heavily. The soldier doesn't seem to have broken a sweat. Doreen says to the woman, Please, please don't hurt us. I have a son. He needs me. The uniformed woman nods at her very slowly. Then it's very simple. Tell us what we want to know. And this ends. Resist, and... And then, as if prompted, the soldier draws his sidearm and holds it near Gary's head, pointed at the counter. Doctor, 
Stop. It's Rael. He's standing there at the other end of the counter, eyes covered by sunglasses that worn brown poncho hanging from his shoulders. Don't hurt these people. The woman whirls, and there's this moment when she looks completely overwhelmed, awed and terrified, ecstatic and hungry. Her mismatched eyes go wide, and she takes a little stunned gulp of air. Ah, she says, breaking into a smile. Yes, she whispers. Yes. The four of us, Rail and I, Doreen and Gary, end up on the floor of the back room of the diner, leaning against cardboard boxes of pancake mix and cooking oil. It's not easy on my hips to sit on the floor, but I guess Gary has it worse. Doreen is helping him with his bloody nose. She's a small woman, looks a little older than she probably is, with light brown skin and curly black hair. She's got on a simple brown dress and a yellow apron over it, and is trying to clean up Gary's face with a trembling hand. Gary looks sullen, his big arms resting on his knees until he grabs the towel from Doreen with a muttered, Quit it! Rael is sitting cross-legged on the floor. I can't tell what he's thinking. His expression is distant, as if concentrating on something else. The soldier is standing by the swinging door to the dining room, keeping an eye on us. There is the back door, but it's far enough away that I don't think any of us could make it in time to escape the soldier's retribution. The doctor, as Rael called her, is out in the dining room, making a call. I guess someone should say something, so I do. I'm sorry. Shut up, says Gary. Bringing all this down on our heads. Uh, hey, we haven't done anything wrong, I say. Then I look at Rael. Uh, have we? Because, honestly, what do I know about this man that I'm defending? Rael still seems far away, his head tilted back as if staring at something high on the wall. But Gary is hurt, both his head and his pride. We didn't ask for any of this. Uh, You shouldn't have raised your hand to that guy, I say, nodding at the soldier. We're talking quietly enough. I'm not sure whether or not the soldier can hear us, but either way, he doesn't react. Gary snaps back. Oh, so now you're blaming me. Rael interrupts. I did not want any of this to happen to any of you, and I am sorry. I could not let her hurt you more on my account. Gary wipes at his nose, wincing at the pain. Yeah, well, it's a little late for that. What did you do? Who are these people? I say, I was hoping you could tell us. You were Navy, right? You recognize that uniform? That Theta patch? He shakes his head. Never seen them before. No flags, no names, no ranks that I can see. I glance at Rail then. Do you know who they are? They are the Theta group. And you know that woman, the doctor? He says, Yes, I know her. Her name is Dr. Mara Ostrom. And what does she want? She wants me, he says. She and those she works for are corrupted by the darkness, which I have sworn to fight. Gary and Doreen exchange worried glances at that, and uh, who can blame them? Rahel doesn't seem to be inclined to make his story more palatable, so I guess it's up to me. Well, whatever's going on, clearly they're not good people. We all fall silent, 
until Rael sits up, looking at us directly now through his side-shielded sunglasses. She has called for more soldiers. They're on the way. I only have a few minutes left to make amends to you. He addresses Doreen. Your name is Doreen? What is your last name? She hesitates a moment before saying, Campbell? Rail nods very slowly once, as if considering this. Do you like this job? She gives a glance at Gary, then shrugs. One of the few I could get. I need it. Because you have a son. She wraps her arms around herself and squeezes, nodding. Yes, he's just turned three. Rail asks, is he at home? And here, she dips her eyes down to the ground. No, I pay a neighbor to look after him. I don't have many other options. I can hear the edge of desperation there. I feel it. I know it. I have lived it. Being poor is like trying to escape a burning building while walking on a rotten and broken floor. One wrong step, one bit of bad luck, and you go crashing through it into the flames below. But that fire is always getting closer, too. That anxiety takes root in your gut, and it never lets you forget that it's there. Rail is quiet a moment more, and then he says, He is staying with your neighbor, Bernice? Doreen looks up, startled. What? Yes? You've been renting that place on Palmetto Avenue for eight months now. Your landlord owns a lot of properties in this area, and his upkeep of them is shoddy. If enough of his tenants were to complain together, it might force him to take better care of his homes. Doreen's looking at him with wide eyes now. Hell, all of us are, I think. But Rail just continues. You went to Dunes Community College for a year. You had good grades, but you dropped out. Why? Doreen can't decide if she should be astonished or embarrassed. I got pregnant. The father left. I had to take care of my son. Rail tilts his head slightly as he looks at her. Do you like living here and working here? It's just a job. Not a very good one. Not many tips on the overnight shift. I don't care about this town, but it's not like I can move. Rail reaches over and gently takes her hand, which she permits with a cautious uncertainty. Rail says to her, Your boss here at the restaurant, Roy Phillips, has been shorting your pay. He is supposed to be making up the difference between what you earn in tips and the minimum wage. A complaint against him with the Department of Labor is now in process and it will be leverage enough that if you want to confront him on it, he will pay you what you are owed. If you like, you can take that money and move to Sanderson in the next state. What? Move? Why would I move? Sanderson Community College has a program for medical billing, which is what you were studying before. Your credits will transfer. There is also tuition assistance, and there's several scholarships available, all of which now have applications on file for you. Her eyes go wide. But I haven't applied for... I I don't understand. And I can't go to school. What about childcare? You're a member of a church here. Not far from the college, you will find Sanderson AME Church. It has a daycare for children your son's age. She leans forward then, squeezing his hand. Is all this true? He places his other hand on hers. It is... Remember that look I told you about that Dr. Astrom had when she saw Rahel? That awed and overwhelmed expression as she just looked at him? 
I saw something similar on Doreen's face at that moment, but where the doctor was possessive and jealous of the man she saw, Doreen has an expression of profound relief and gratitude. She just stares at his face, holding his hands in hers like he were a lifeline thrown to her amid a stormy sea. She says, Is this what you do? Is this why they want you? After a long moment, he says, I try to do the best I can with what I have where I am. I don't think that makes me different than you, Doreen. She pulls her eyes away to look at me, seeking an explanation. But I don't know anything more than she does. She says, If this Theta group captures you, what will they do to you? Rail says, They will imprison me, isolate me from the world and its people. They will attempt to force me to do as they wish, using methods of ever greater desperation. That sounds like torture, she says. They hurt you? Yes, he says. Outside, I hear the click of Dr. Astrum's heels as she approaches. They're on their way, the doctor says to the soldier. With the Faraday truck, Doreen looks imploringly at Gary. We have to help him. Gary shifts contempt on his face. Come on, Doreen. We have to, she says. Gary still is unconvinced. You believe all that? He could be making it up. No, she says. No, he knows. And it's all true. You know that Roy is a sleaze of a manager, and my house is falling apart. It's too specific to be lies. It's hope. When was the last time you felt any hope, Gary? We have to help him. Then she repeats it with great conviction to me. We have to help him. The Book of Constellations is written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms. Music for this episode featured the songs Away and Glimpse of Eternity by Maidan. Links to Maidan's music can be found on our webpage, and you should definitely look him up on Bandcamp. Additional music came from Free Sound Collective. The theme song is Cycles by Pictures of the Floating World. If you're enjoying the story and would like to help support it, Get on social media and send your friends to it. Posts, snaps, tweets, shares, and word of mouth are all very helpful. Our homepage is bookofconstellations.com. See you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.